0: Hello and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by SurvivingBreastCancer.org. I am Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of SurvivingBreastCancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible thanks to our sponsor, Store My Tumor. Your preserved tumor contains the most important information about your cancer. Stormy Tumor provides live tumor preservation and coordination of advanced diagnostics and personalized immunotherapies. Thank you so much for supporting us. Hello, hello, my friends. I hope you are doing well. I am so excited for today's podcast. We've been getting a lot of messages, DMs, and emails from the community asking about the emotional, psychological, and mental side of coping with cancer. We all have heard the term, the new normal. I feel like it's a term that has some negative connotations. Because for so long, we refer to ourselves as like the before-cancer and after-cancer person, right? Maybe we don't want this new normal. So how can we learn to embrace this change, move forward, and come to an understanding of life after breast cancer? From recalibrating ourselves to tips on how to manage uncertainty and reestablishing sexual wellness and intimacy, this conversation is filled with several actionable takeaways and tips. One of my favorites is when Dr. Bullis shares his great mental mindset mantra. He says, let us remember, I am doing the best I can with what I've got right now to make the most of my day. Isn't that just like amazing? So listen to the show and be sure to leave us a review and some comments at the end about what your favorite takeaway from this conversation is. I am incredibly honored and pleased to have Dr. David Bullis as our guest on the podcast today. Dr. Bullis is the director of ambulatory behavioral medicine at Vernon Cancer Center at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts. He is a clinical psychologist specializing in coping and illness. Having worked with both acute and chronic illnesses in both inpatient and ambulatory settings, his experience spans the range of illnesses and injuries and now is taking on the challenge of coping with cancer. He has worked with patients, families, and staff to facilitate the kinds of control and empowerment that allows them to thrive and overcome the physical, mental, and emotional barriers to health and wellness. Before we jump into this conversation, I'm playing around with some new content for our podcast. I'd like to include a what I've been reading section. This will be anything from updates in the news to poems, books, news articles, and quotes. Just something to continue to provide you with even more value about what's going on in the breast cancer community. I'm also going to be adding a section at the end of our show where we talk about breakdowns and rebounds. Be sure to listen till the end. We are all friends here, right? So I feel comfortable sharing with you the realities of my day-to-day and my week-to-weeks. Trust me, there are plenty of breakdowns. We all have our breakdown moments, and I'm here to share what I do to bounce back from them. I hope you enjoy. All right, so I have to say, I have been doing a little bit of thinking and contemplating about stage four metastatic breast cancer. I hear all the time that stage four needs more, and over the next couple of months, I'm going to be doing a deeper dive into what that actually means. What are the unique qualities and assistance and cures and money and fundraising and You know, everything that stage four needs more actually needs and is not getting. And in part of this research, I came across the National Coalition of Breast Cancer. Am I saying that correctly? It was the NBC see National Breast Cancer Coalition, let's start with that. So I came across the National Breast Cancer Coalition and they are sponsoring a bill that they brought into legislation April of 2019, specifically helping and trying to move forward the Breast Cancer Access to Care Act. So in this investigation, and I didn't know this, so I wanted to share this with all of you in case you didn't know it either, but did you know that there is a 24 month period of waiting before people have access to Medicare if they are under the Social Security of Disability Insurance. So let's say I have breast cancer and I am on disability and I can't get a job and I need health insurance so that I can continue on with my treatment plans. I have to wait 24 months before I'm even considered for Medicare? That sounds absolutely ridiculous. I'm sure there is a lot of background that I am not bringing into light here, especially because This waiting period, I believe, was established back in the 70s. So, yes, there is a lot to uncover, but pretty much we need to move it forward, and no one should have to wait 24 months to be able to get Medicare, especially if they're on disability. This is almost like insult to injury, if you ask me. So, what are the things that you can be doing? In fact, there are a lot that you can be doing now. I want to quote that this is a bill that you can reference. It's called the Metastatic Breast Cancer Access to Care. It is HR... 2178 S 1374, which is under review in its first phase of legislation. So, a couple of things that you can do these are activities for representatives and senators who are not currently co sponsors of this bill. So, for example, as someone listening to this podcast, you can schedule a meeting with your representative and senator in his or her district office. You can attend a town hall meeting. You can send an opt-ed piece or letter to the editor of your local newspaper and or use social media to get your representative and senator's attention. You can send an email or call the healthcare policy staff person in your local area. And you can remind your representative and senator that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and now is the time to act. So that is my piece on what I'm reading today. Please take action because we are here to empower you with resources and tools to actually make a difference. Now let's jump into our show with Dr. David Bullis. Welcome to the conversation.
1: Before we get started, I think we should probably introduce our guest. No. <laughs> so we, we, we wish. <laughs> We wish to welcome Dr. David Bullis. He's a clinical psychologist uh, at the Mass General Newton Wellesley facility, but he also works at Mass General in Boston. He's got about 25 years experience, according to his uh, biography. And um, uh, Laura and I at survivingbreastcancer.org had the pleasure of attending one of his presentations uh, in cohort with uh, Dr. Amy Commander. Uh, Their presentation was fabulous. All told, there were about 35, 50 people in the audience, all cancer survivors of, of, uh, of a variety of uh, cancers, but um, we're here addressing the, uh, the the breast cancer front. And um, with that, we'd like to, um, to, to chat with uh, Dr. Bullis with regards to that fabulous presentation that he gave. It was really captivating where he's, he was dealing with the new Uh, the new normal for cancer uh, uh, patients post-treatment, and also uh, dealing with the issue of emotional coping. And so with that introduction, I'm going to turn it back to Laura and to David, and then um, we'll let it run. Typically, these are very free-flowing. Um, well Because I didn't bring my PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can start by just getting into a bit of your background, sure. and then um, uh, driving right into that presentation that night, uh, again, dealing with the, the new normal of, uh, of a cancer survivor. In our world, typically, we're dealing with breast cancer, Cancer survivors, and I have found that a hundred percent of them suffer what I call PTSD mm-hmm. after the in the post-active treatment stage. As that- soon as they leave, you folks in the hospital, and, yeah. and you folks uh, comprise their 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 number one caregiving team. I find, and we've dealt with. 30,000, 40,000 breast cancer survivors, every single one of them says the same thing, that yeah. they do suffer from it. And so it's easily recognized. And if that being the case... Um, that that was my parking. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that one out. I was say,
0: like, street action right there. Yeah. <laughs> that,
1: that being the case, um, uh, for them to recognize that it, is, uh, that it is the new normal and that there, there are coping mechanisms, and I don't want to steal your thunder because it was such a great presentation. And, by the way, we are looking to carry David's presentation as a PowerPoint resource on our resource page at survivingbreastcancer.org. So without further ado, let me turn that over to David.
2: All right, great. Well, so uh, just to get a little bit, sort of back up a little bit. So my background, you know, I've been working as a health psychologist for 25 years in part, but only been in cancer for the last five, really. Mm -hmm. And this concept of the new normal, and you're saying it's, it's endemic in breast cancer. It's actually endemic in any kind of medical process. I've worked I'd worked 15 years at a medical, physical rehab hospital. Uh, So dealing with Parkinson's and stroke and brain injury and spinal cord and, you know, amputations and MS and all sorts of other things. And I think part of this process is that any time the human body is assaulted by something, uh, a medical event, uh, there's a readjustment. There's a recalibration. There's a realignment, right? And so I think part of this process is just recognizing that so, so that's true for a lot of those diseases. The, the difference with cancer is that, like say with, with uh, a spinal cord injury, it's pretty static. Once, it's, once your spine is severed, like that's, it's, as far as the current technology, I mean everything has to be premised here on what we know as of today. Uh, but things like a stroke can get better. You know, uh, and one of the things that we've done really good at in cancer treatment is turn it into a chronic illness. So it used to be, you know, people talking about the C word, right? Like you wouldn't want to even say it, right? Because God forbid, if you say it, you'd welcome it into your life and then you're screwed and that would suck. So basically, uh, now we've gotten so good at treating it that we now put people into a state of chronic condition. And and that's really this concept, right? Of like you now have to adjust to this, and this is true whether it's stage one, two, three, or four uh, cancer. And I think that's part of like it was a time, and not long ago, maybe ten years ago, if you had stage four metastatic cancer, the conversation was, you know, don't buy any green bananas, get your paperwork in order, you know, make sure you spend the next couple of weeks with your family that you love them, and you know, and it's been great working with you. Um, See you later. Nowadays, it's like no, no. We get that. We can treat that. There's probably something else we can do. And if you wait, you know, a, a week or two, we may have something else. Yeah. Because the treatments are coming so fast and furious uh, that it opens up a whole new world. Which one of the reasons why working as a psychologist in cancer is so interesting is because there is no terra firma. There is no basis like, oh, this is what we know. We're good to go. That's how it works. And that is. Is true with so working with more of the orthopedic. If you have a broken hip, we kind of know how that's going to play out, right? Six to eight weeks, do some PT, back on the business, maybe do some swimming, and then you're, you know, I mean, that's a gross overgeneralization. But the idea is that there's just everything is changing in, in cancer. Breast cancer is the most researched program, you know, the uh, domain within cancer. Um, but it's it's true there, and it's true across the board that recognizing that one is going to have not only a new normal but also a new normal that's going to persist for a long time right so that's why this is not just like if you can just hang on you know this is you know the tough part's over and then you're good to go then don't worry about it and that's just not really the case with cancer uh mostly because there's just this long-term follow-ups you know there's the six month and then the 12 month and the 18 the 24 and then we're, you know, they're talking about taking the anastrozole, any of the you know estrogen inhibitors, and mm-hmm. it was five years, and now maybe it's ten, and then maybe it's fifteen, and you know, and that's the only reason why those numbers get longer is because we keep doing research, and we feel like, hey, look at it, it's been twenty years, and these women are doing better, so maybe let's do make it, let's make it an even twenty, and we'll <laughs> call it a day. Well, at that point, you know, like it, yeah. it's 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 almost a lifetime, right, mm-hmm. depending on when you start. So, I think part of this concept of new normal is based on this concept, like what's one of the key questions that I'm asked, is like, am I ever gonna get back to normal? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I think that question suggests that it's a place. Like, Mm -hmm. I live at this address, and am I ever gonna get back to this address? And what is actually true is, and this we know intellectually, but that wellness is a kind of a continuum, right? And it goes from being totally well down to our ultimate demise. And that's the continuum we're all on. And intellectually, we know that, right? We know that we're not immortal. We know that people ahead of us, like our parents and grandparents, may have passed away. So that's a pretty clear concept. However, emotionally, we all live on this very specific end of wellness called benign innocence, which is that position we all live in, which is like, I'm good. I have been good. I see no reason why I won't always be good. I know bad things happen, but they mostly happen to other people, and so I'm good, yeah. right? Yep. And I'm gonna stay and I'm good, and I'm gonna stay in that benign innocence for as long as I can. And we all tend to stay there until the thing happens. And it's the thing can be a stroke, can be cancer, can be a car accident, can be you know whatever, but when that thing happens, then all of a sudden, one of the things that you lose is you lose benign innocence. You can't go back there. And so then this question becomes so, and that's what happened, and so that, the, that is the, the, the larger general context. The smaller context, or the more specific context, So there are two really hard times in cancer. The first one is when you hear from your mammographer, oh, uh, hmm, you know, Can you wait here? I'll be right back. Like the minute you hear that, you're like, dang it. You know, what am I gonna do now, right? And then from that moment, the clock ticks until you hear an oncologist say to you, no deal, no worries, this is what we're gonna do. Here's the plan. And even though that plan is not something you'd wish on anybody, like cancer, I mean surgery, chemo, radiation, the whole deal, right? when you hear that plan, you're relieved. Why? Because it gets rid of this one, the main enemy in cancer treatment is uncertainty. Actually cancer, like what I said to people all the time, is like the cancer part's pretty straightforward. Like we have a lot of research, especially within the breast cancer sphere, of what works. And we do much better now about tracking genetics to see like if your genetic code is this way, then that suggests a certain several treatments. If it's the other way, some other treatments. So that actually, once we get all the data, it's not absolutely formulaic, but it's it's you know it's more formulaic than just you know darts on the dartboard. The uncertainty piece, though, no matter how much science advances, we can't just contain that. So that first time, and that can last, you know, a week. It can last a couple of weeks. It depends on where you are in the process and how much access you have and. You know, certainly within the Boston area where we're talking, uh, the ability to get data is relatively quick. If you live in the, you know, in the central U.S. and the south and some other parts of the U.S. where you don't have, I don't know, 10 major medical centers all within five miles of each other, um, then this, this can be longer. But that time of uncertainty is, uh, is sort of the worst. The other time that is hard is right after you ring the bell uh, at the cancer center, wherever that is, and and the staff were all like, good for you, nice work, congratulations, go enjoy your life, we'll see you in three months. Okay. And for us, we feel like we've really accomplished something. So we're very happy with it, right? For the person who's going through it on the other end, it feels like we're just sort of saying, there's the door, don't let it hit you on the way out. Uh, and most patients are like, I don't know what to do next. Okay. and. What, what's the, what are you reintroduced to in that moment? The old friend uncertainty comes right back, huge. Yeah. And so a lot of my work actually turns out to be with the people, because the funny thing about it from a psychological perspective is <laughs> that when you're first diagnosed, you don't have the bandwidth to talk to anybody about it. When you're in treatment, you're just following orders, right? You show up on Tuesday and you do what you're supposed to do and there's not a whole lot of like emotional thought goes into it and you don't have the energy to kind of delve into, like, I wonder what this really feels like. At the end of treatment, then all of a sudden, you have both the time and the energy to think about what you just went through, and you're also dumped into this bucket of uncertainty again. And so that ends up becoming that process is the process of establishing what is the new normal. And the new normal, as I said in the presentation uh, that you guys came to, is a moving target. It is not a place. It is not a time. It's not like, listen, you put in your six months, and you're good. Like, with a broken hip, six to eight weeks, you're going to be okay. I mean, barring other accidents or whatever, right? Um, And uh, but this is like, no. As I evolve, as I take the medicine, my body changes. my, my look changes, people oftentimes will say that their hair comes back looking differently. Their body image changes, so, and that doesn't happen, you know, as you walk out the door, that's an evolving process. Uh, and some people like the changes, other people hate them, you know, it's a, that's probably an individual kind of thing. So I think that's part of this process of just recognizing that if we think about, uh, you know, the new normal as a place, then you're constantly in that sort of, uh, what, whatever age that is, the kids are always asking, Are we there yet? You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? And the answer like, is, I don't know because I don't know where I'm going. Right. right? It's the road trip from hell. Like, I can't answer that question because I don't know what the end point is. But if I think about uh, the new normal as being more like, Yeah, this is how I'm functioning, this is how I manage, this is how I approach the world now, then that gives you a, it's a process that allows you to take in whatever comes at you rather than, you no, know, here are the rules. First I do A, then I do B, then I do C, and then I'm done. Like right. that doesn't work, right? Because A, B, and C, one, don't apply across multiple people and they also don't apply across time. And that's, that's the challenge, so.
1: And, and I think from the perspective of all of our breast cancer community, that's that's when that PTSD is setting in. And you're kind of setting a, a really nice tone for them to recognize that everyone goes through this mm-hmm. and that it is the new normal. And that's what I find so captivating because uh, typically as an organization, we just try to inject positivity into that heinous fabric of a breast cancer diagnosis. And, uh, and ultimately, they all go through that, what I refer to as PTSD, as soon as they're leaving mm-hmm. that post-active treatment, uh, uh, the, post, uh, the, yeah. uh, the active treatment status. And um, ultimately, they're, they're, they're so full of, 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 uh, of concern and uh, a, a, a bit of an agitated state. And, and everyone else seems to think that they're fine now. And they, they tend to lose their caregivers. They tend to lose their support teams. And they're just going through hell, and I, I think that it's going to be great for them to hear that, especially the newer folks coming in um, post treatment, coming into the uh, uh, the community who recognize that they've their predecessors have all gone through this before them, and I think it's, it's, and I it's something
2: think that, for them to latch onto. Well, I think, part of them, one of the most important things and when I talk about a lot of people is we need to depathologize. Mm-hmm the emotional roller coaster that people go on like you would be out of your freaking mind Mm -hmm. not to be worried when faced with uncertainty
3: of course right Right?
2: i mean like everybody in this world we go i mean look around society we go out of our way to make sure that we have we have the least amount of uncertainty Mm -hmm. right? right and uh and we do that in really good ways like we exercise and we eat right some of us uh, and other times we do it in really bad ways like I just have to put my head on the sand. I can't tolerate this I got I need to numb myself I need to just watch I need to binge watch stuff so I don't think about it whatever right. you know, what I mean, so yeah I think part of this process is just recognizing like if we can just if there's one thing that comes out of the work that I do it's just recognizing that emotions are a normal reaction to the world that happens mm-hmm. to us and around us and and that way, I think, because, and I think this is especially true in various communities where, you know, psychological, like talking about stuff and 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 emoting and all that kind of stuff is really frowned upon. And right. then you're really lost. And also, the thing about the survivorship piece, which you're just alluding to, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it especially hard is that uh, it's a really mixed feeling. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's pretty stoked to be done with treatment. No lie. Right. Like right if If I can stop being irradiated i 'm good with that. If you can stop putting chemotherapy chemicals in my body, sign me up so that part 's good but then the i don 't know how to define myself by this this altering this shifting normal because there 's no there 's no guideposts mm-hmm. and this is one of the other things I think is unique about my work is and this is true about medical care across the board is that medicine is not well suited for this conversation because there aren't protocols, there aren't Mm -hmm. random control trials for helping people deal with uncertainty, right? Right. There's no drug, and this is, I mean, I don't get on a soapbox about drugs, you know. (laughs) No, But, but, that being said, I will now say that there's no pharmaceutical solving of this, so there's no, interest, there's no energy, there's no money going into feeling it, figuring out this right. out, other than websites and, 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 and blogs and, and groups like yours, who are really thinking about, well, wait, this is a really important part of the process, right, we can, we can kill cancer, there's labs and, you know, minutes away from where we're sitting right now, where they're working on the actual biochemistry of how to kill cancer, which is great. Yeah. But the process, the human experience of that.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
2: just, that's up to us. And so that's part of this work that I'm doing and thinking about talking with you guys has been great because yeah. I think it's part of that conversation around how do we help people recognize that the map, and this is one of those weird things like, when I say to my clients like, first we have to draw the map
3: mm-hmm. and then you
2: have to use the map. Right. Like having a map is great. Like, I don't know if you guys ever driven, we used to, I drove across country with my wife Uh, a long time ago, and we used to get these things from AAA called triptychs, you remember triptychs, (laughs) which gives you like 25 miles of the route at a time, They drove me nuts, right, because I could never, I wanted to see the big picture, I wanted to see where I was going in the big picture, Uh, and, but that's the idea, it's like literally a big, why the uncertainty is so hard is that you have to figure out what's the map. What are my touchstones? What are my guideposts? What are the things that are hallmarks to me? Mm-hmm. And then once I figure those out, then that gives me a little bit of a filter through which to kind of ask questions and guide me. I want to know what to ask. Like, who do I talk to about, you know, sexual health? Who do I talk to about? Because that has a big impact on mm-hmm. my relationship, right? What do I? How do I talk about um, just my moodiness? <laughs> Is that normal moodiness, quote unquote? Or is that like not so normal moodiness? Uh, although I would argue that they're all normal. Uh, they're just different sources, right? Some of it's hormonal, some of it's medical, some of it's just, uh, I don't like the fact that I've had to go through this. And I'm having to grieve the loss of that benign innocence. I'm having to sort of sure. get my head wrapped around what the new stuff is going to be. And it all seems new to me. And so how do I do that? So. We attended
1: in um, late winter. We attended the Nurse Navigator conference out in Las Vegas, and uh, to, to a Navigator, and, and I probably we we met up with 400 navigators there that came to our uh, table and asked what we were doing, and and, we t- and, and typically we would we we'd, we'd s- give them that uh, lock stock and verse as to well you know that with the PTSD starting as soon as mm-hmm. they leave you and you could see the light bulbs going off. It's like you needed to talk to this whole conference. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, that should be part of their, what is it, CEU that they have to go through oh, yeah, to get their continuing, continuing education. education right. exactly. And, and um, it, they just, they seemed they all seem Perplexed, they and the light bulbs did go off because they clearly understand that. And but their their focus is largely on that treatment side,
2: yeah, the and, medical and, piece, which is what they're trained so and,
1: well to do. And they do a fa- fabulous job, I agree. And then um, the, the survivorship piece is kind of pushed to the side, and and to help their patients on their way, this is where I feel that this is where your piece really comes into. Play.
2: I yeah, no, it's, it's right. It's yeah, no. I, I mean, I think it's we we try to integrate it more in the at, at the Mass General Cancer Center. We try to integrate that more, but it's it's a it's a it's a struggle because on the one hand, people don't want to necessarily return to the scene of the crime, so to speak, exactly. right? Like, <laughs> you know, so people have spent all this time at the cancer center, and they part of them wants to leave it, you know, as if it were on fire, and other parts of them want to come back to it because it's this one place where they got this daily dose of compassion and caring and people who understood what it was like to go through it. So there's this tug of war, right?
0: Yeah, I was at my, um, one of my support groups at my hospital where I was getting treated and we're all going around the table of like talking about places where we feel safe, where we Mm -hmm. feel secure. And I remember writing in my journal and sharing with the group at the time, like I feel secure here. Mm-hmm. Like every time I come, I come every week. You guys are checking my blood work right. and you guys are taking care of me. And I had this constant affirmation of like, you're gonna be okay, or here's the plan, or oh a new study came out, so now we're gonna tweak it this way, but here is why. Right. And it was like this amazing, like, I just wanna be here right. all the time. <laughs> right. And then you're right, like after you get like come back in three months, come back in six months. Now when I go back for my checkups, I'm like, oh, I don't really wanna be here because exactly that's where right. the scene of the crime was. Uh, I think you bring up such a huge point and I'm like the, the mind is churning a little bit thinking of who our listeners are, right? Those are the yeah. I mean it could be anybody, but really those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer or those who are trying to get more information about a breast cancer diagnosis. And I'm thinking back in my own experience, no one actually spoke with me about the emotional and well-being side of a breast cancer diagnosis. It mm-hmm. was very much here is the plan. Mm-hmm. We're gonna follow the plan, stick to the plan. And not at one point did someone say, like, your life is about to be dramatically altered. And maybe they shouldn't say it in those terms. But, (laughs) you know, at what point do we get introduced to the psychology? And is there, um, you know, a time that's most appropriate? When I talk to those who have been diagnosed, one thing that we definitely stress is, kind of like when the person is ready, right? Right. There are a lot of people who do not want to be associated with it and they keep it very close to the vest and they don't want to be acknowledged. And they're just like on the website reading very passively and I don't know their first names. They're just getting content. And then there's other people who come to our like in-person meet and greets from all over the country and they want to like talk to the person and hug the people (laughs) and say like, you know, you're my like sister and we've been through this together. And so you have those extremes. So I think when people do feel emotionally ready to either share their story or talk about it or ask for help because they realize they need this unbiased you know, person to just listen to them. Yeah. Um, you know, It can be a different time for everybody, but do you have any thoughts about how these conversations can start getting integrated into that full treatment?
2: Yeah, so it's a great question. So when I first came to the Cancer Center, uh, it was my belief, and it still is my belief, that I think the earlier professionals can broach this topic, the better. Uh, but with the contract, with the, with the sort of the concept of that, that uh, you know, we can provide the buffet but you may not be hungry at that moment for more information. so But it's our job to provide the full buffet. And uh, so for those people who are having a hard time eating, this may be a bad analogy, but, <laughs> but you get the idea. Like the idea is, you know, we want to introduce those concepts right off the bat. And so one of the things we've done at at Mass General Cancer Center in Newton-Wellesley is that I I developed a course called the What's Next Class, and it was for all newly diagnosed people, and it goes over sort of prophylactic stress management. And one of the things about, and we joke a lot of times about we're really good about talking about the medical plan is, but it's really hard to market the it's gonna suck part like (laughs) that's not that's not your best sales pitch i mean i don't know much about sales but i'm guessing that telling people it's going to suck is not going to be the best sales pitch but what is true is that if we say look it's really normal to have an emotional roller coaster it's really normal to have these physical sensations it's really normal to have these these thought processes go on it's really normal to have these moments when you feel panicked and overwhelmed And when those things happen, and if those things happen, then here's some things you can do about it. Here's some people to talk to. Here's some strategies that really work. Uh, And here's some stuff where you just, uh, you know, we're just going to give you the information. And then you get to decide, you know what? I don't have any bandwidth for this at all. Like, Mm -hmm. can't go there, not going to happen. And then other times it's like, oh my god, like that was so spot on. And it, but I only took I took the nugget about like, like exercise and recognizing mm-hmm. that like anything counts or whatever. Like okay, that I could take in and mm-hmm. I could take that in as my ledger. But what we did, so we, we did, the, I put together the group, another great PowerPoint presentation, in my <laughs> center, right? And uh, and no one came, mm-hmm. right? Because when we were promoting it that was the time when people were at their smallest bandwidth it's like saying okay so you're already coming in for a chemo teach and then you're coming in for a follow-up visit then you're coming in for lab work then you're coming in for chemotherapy and you might also have radiation and so by the way while you're here how about you spend another hour (laughs) right talking about how all that feels and people were like no right not interested like why would i do that why would i set myself it's hard enough to be here to do all that stuff that I need to do. Right. Why would I want to sign up for another period of time? So what we did was we, we put it online. Yeah. Okay. And uh, some kind of low-tech videography. Uh, and it's now everybody, every new patient that comes to the clinic gets a handout that says, here are the things that we, rec- we recognize happen to everybody who comes through or some a lot, some a little. Some people have some parts and not others. Nevertheless, here's a resource for you. It's, it's built by us. It's with our resources, it's with our staff. Uh, and you can go online and look at it. And, you know, if it whets your appetite to go, it's like, I really need to talk to the dietician, or I really need to talk to, uh, you know, the physiatrist, or I really mm-hmm. want to talk to, I, the massage sounds great, can I get a massage? All of that's sort of in there. And so I developed that for the what's the what's next class for newly diagnosed folks, and then I made a what's next class survivorship edition, the sequel. Love it. I only have two sequels. Like this is not Game of Thrones, right? So sadly, the videography is still not that good. Uh, there are no dragons. We got the theme music yeah, down. Yeah, full so full, it's full disclosure. There's no dragons. There's no fire. Whatever. Uh, in any event um that the idea is that for the same reason right is that when people people will enter into survivorship and they'll leave and then there's this and the way the protocol works at our hospital is that you then come back a month later for your survivorship visit Mm -hmm. and probably that's because you kind of like you want to have enough time to figure out like what's wrong like what don't i like right you know so if, if i just come back the next week I'm still in sort of the honeymoon phase, like I don't have to come back, it was great. I I went to dinner, I went out to the movies, I didn't have to worry about getting up early or whatever. Um, So a month kind of gives the people enough time to kind of think about it. Um, But during that month, it's not like you don't have any questions, right, it's Mm -hmm. not like you're like, oh, I'm totally good, you know, a month I'll just check in, like I'm gonna go see the dentist next month or whatever. It's not like that, right, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, so we do the same thing. We give them the same kind of video link, and it's a it's like the it's a series of episodes. Again, do not think you know HBO. Uh, it's a series of episodes that go through uh, the various aspects of it and um, the, what it, what is to expect and what to think about and what to ask. And really, I think the main idea is we want to want to prompt patients to ask good questions. Yes. Right, because. In essence and this is something that i think this is this is another one of my i'll i'll be hopping on and off my soapbox throughout the podcast (laughs) so please i apologize for anybody to that but one of my uh main driving messages to all patients is that we the providers work for you Mm. you hire us to provide you a service to get rid of your cancer that's what you're hiring us for Uh, And in the Boston area, you can make the joke like, we know there are lots of other providers you could choose from, and thanks for flying Newton. Um, Just like JetBlue kind of thing. But the idea is that it's very important for two reasons. One is to empower the the person who's going through it to recognize that your goals should be the driving force behind what you go through. Mm And also to help organize the provider's thinking around, when I offer you something, I should be able to make a cogent argument about why that's going to help you achieve your goal. Mm
3: -hmm. Not
2: just, I mean, I think it's nice to hear about the statistics and say, like, you know, this treatment reduced the recurrence rate by 25% or 2% or whatever it is. Um, And I think that's great. At a population statistics level, that's interesting, I think. But in terms of me as a person, like, those population statistics don't actually have an impact on me personally because I don't know where I would fall along that percentage, right? Mm -hmm. Like, am I going to be in the 1% or am I going to be in the 99%? Mm -hmm. I can tell you the answer to that, me personally. uh, (laughs) Fiscally, (laughs) I'll be in the 99%. But I mean, the idea is that, you know, I think that's part of what we want to do is, you know, we and i think the part of the, the the thinking here right is that survivorship and what the impact of that is is somewhat pre- premised on what the intro to treatment is
3: mm-hmm. oh okay
2: and how you go through treatment and what kind of relationship you have with your providers and how they treat you and how you respond to them so that as you exit treatment you feel like all right well this is the plan i know how this is going to work i'm going to get yeah. the treatment till then and then i have a new plan when I leave treatment, and that's my survivorship plan, uh, and I want to exercise how I manage that. And you know, I always joke: there's only two things you need to do with stress: have a plan and follow the plan, <laughs> which uh, you know is a gross oversimplification of life. However, there's a real nugget to truth to this, right? Like, and that's why when people hear what the treatment plan is going to be in the beginning there tends to be a real drop off of their stress level because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they have something tangible to hold on to. There's a treatment calendar. Right. You know where you're going to be on the 15th of the month.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, I joke um, on my podcast a lot. Actually, when my doctor told me I was going to be on some of these aromatase inhibitors for the next ten years, I like literally fell off the table because there's no calendar big enough. Right. right? I was like, "How am I going to even measure and check off the box every single day for the next decade?" Right. So exactly. you're right. There's yeah. this ambiguity, and I think you bring up such interesting points about like the survivorship plan and this this process because for me it was the first time that I also realized that. I had a lot of say in what that survivorship piece looked like where I'm sure I could have argued you know I don't want to do chemotherapy I'm going to choose a different route I'm going to do X, Y, and Z like technically I did have a choice I didn't choose that I'm all about like the treatment that I received but now that I'm on this longer term plan I do realize I have a little bit more say in what that quality of life is going to look like and how I'm defining what my new normal is and a lot of it just comes down to when i wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and get ready for work or whatever it's that i'm doing that day do i feel comfortable that i'm doing everything i can to make sure that this doesn't come back or right. if i have my decided breast cancer like that i am doing everything i can to you know live to meet my goals right? right it's a very personal decision right and that i think goes back to what you were saying with the relationship with your on- oncological team is you know maybe it's <laughs> Decreasing a dosage by half because your joints hurt too much or maybe it's doing every other day or having those conversations where Previously you weren't going to say well. I only want to do half of my chemotherapy or (laughs) The the truth is about the
2: chemo is like you have a choice writ large like do I want to get treatment or not? But it turns out like if your genetics are you know have the following markers PDL one or whatever Then your treatment choices are there's like maybe one or two medicines that really make the most sense Sure, right and suddenly you're gonna say, you know what? I think I'm just gonna go with the ketchup. Right. Like, I don't care about any of the chemotherapy, I'm just gonna do this ketchup thing. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Mm. Although people do do that sometimes. But it's really the, and this is the thing about the new normal, is the new normal, because it's not a destination, mm. you can't all get there. Like, if you were all gonna to go to the Marriott Long Wharf, that's a place. Right. And you could set we're all gonna get there. Now, we can all go there different routes. There's the subway, there's the bus, I could Uber, whatever, right? Um, but that's a place. The, the process, thinking about the new normal as a way of thinking, mm-hmm. as a way of appreciating the world, as a way of sort of evaluating what's, what's important to me, then that leads you to a very, on purpose, unique place. Um, now, that is when I say that to clients, they're like, "Oh my God! Like I'm the only one. Uh, that's, I don't, I don't want to be doing anything where I'm the only one. I want to have other people around me." And the truth is, is that that journey you can do with as many people as listen to this podcast, plus the other 4 million, 15 million, whatever, forty-five yeah. million women who who go through this. Knowing that, but that's it's the same thing with like. You don't have the same hairstyle or hair color or dress the same, or you don't necessarily like the same music as the people sure. who you care, you know, who you hang out with. So it's that kind of idea like, what are the, th- my new normal is a way of me appreciating the world yeah. and a way of me thinking about what are my values. And um, for some people, the value is I don't, I want the least amount of symptoms possible and I'm willing to accept the consequences of what that looks like. Yes. I want to have no pain whatsoever, (laughs) okay, Uh, but then there's some consequences to that choice as well, right? And I think that's part of this process is thinking about, you know, the sort of three rules that I recommend people think about, right? There's one is like that every decision we make has some element of choice, right? Every choice, number two, every choice we make has some positive and some negative element to it. There are no perfect choices in the world. And number 3 is there's no such thing as not making a choice. So part of the thing about the new normal is recognizing like I can I'm going to make a choice. I'm either going to do the you know the anastrozole or the tamoxifen or whatever or I'm not. Um, it's not like I can take a like a quarter dose or something sure. and, and hope right? like it's either you're doing it or you're not, right? And, and it's, it's good either way, right? There's, there's, there's statistics that help lead people in certain directions. Mm-hmm. But part of the process is recognizing like, when I make that choice, I'm gonna recognize that there are some positive aspects to that and some negative aspects to that. And so then on those days when I'm having a negative aspect, like my bones are aching, mm-hmm. or I'm just tired, or I'm a little bit more cranky than I wanna be, or whatever, and I think it's because of that, I get to remember, like, well, no, but I did sign up for this, right? Like, I'm doing this. I'm investing in this medicine because it's going to give me uh, a decade from now (laughs) or (laughs) or 25 years from now uh, the effect that I want, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's part of that process is just recognizing that we want to support people in making informed choices. Uh, But, you know, this is sort of and so, like, you just don't know what the choices are right. until you've made the map, and the map is about your preferences, your desires, what makes you, you know, what are your core values?
0: Yeah, I like and, that, your preferences. That's like a really good like individual reflection, right? right? Like, yeah, mm-hmm.
2: and I think that's the thing is it allows people to come at this in their own way. So like, I really wanna, like one of my core values is that I'm able to be physically mobile and travel the world because Traveling the world and seeing other cultures is what enlivens me other people may like I just want to be able to go across town because that's where my grandkids are sure I have I have no desire to leave the county. the county (laughs) Never mind the the the, the three town area that I live in my grandkids live across town. That's what I want to be able to do so I think that's part of this is recognizing like the new normal is what is that for me? And I think this is a, the one of the, the uh, not the downside, but one of the um, unintended facts about benign innocence, which we were talking about earlier, is that we oftentimes don't take a lot of time to reflect mm-hmm. on the things that make us who we are and that drive us and that we care about. Uh, and that the breast cancer experience, but you can read in any kind of cancer experience, uh, really does kind of peel away some of that, you know, benignness of our lives, right? Yeah. And we're just floating along, everything's going well, it's all good, and then pop, and then you get the so you have this, and it's a, I say this in air quotes, but like, you get the the opportunity mm-hmm. to sit back and reflect on what is it, right? that makes me tick? What is it that I care about? What is it that uh, I really, yeah, you know what? That is important to me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wanna, and that's, and when you think about that, that is one of the things that allows you to have, that's where the new normal comes from. Okay. Because those guiding principles then allow you to make decisions or like, no, this is really important to me. This is, I really care about this and, you know, even just the development of this website and podcast and all those things like that was something that you guys decided like this is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to let my experience just sort of just blow away in the wind like oh that was just another breast cancer patient. Yep, there she goes. There's another one, you know. Yep. You want to do something of impact. Uh, and I think that's a really wonderful use of that new normal energy. Like this is one of the new normals for you guys and I think that's great. We we
1: always urge our community to celebrate every day, Mm -hmm. and uh, that gives you a a newfound perspective on life as well. If if um, if you could, could you could you touch bases with the caregiving community, and uh, what is their coping mechanism going to be looking like as their taking care of a, a spouse, a loved one, a, a, a parent, or whatever, mm-hmm. dealing with the, uh, the the many issues of, uh, of a cancer diagnosis and uh, post-treatment survivorship.
2: Well, so here's one of the funny things, I, and this is about back to sort of the emotions are normal piece, I think that, and I, I think it's great to celebrate every day, but one, one of the things I think is is uh, is important also to recognize and this is important for patients as well as uh, caregivers, is that not every day is going to feel great. There are going to be days that suck. Like, you're going to be tired. You're going to be cranky. You're going to be in pain. You're like, And that's not because things are going wrong, right? That's because you're a human being. And sometimes being a human being is not a terribly comfortable situation. And it may be about cancer. Or it also could be like, I have to do this presentation for my boss. And my boss, you know, his wife just yeah, whatever and so now he's all stressed out and he's taking it out on all his underlings and now sure. I have to present for him at this national conference. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like some kind of zen goddess, right? Like that's a really hard that's a big ask. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so to think well I should be happy that I've I've survived breast cancer in that moment. I don't know. Like you may be thinking like this sucks. I don't want to do this. This I'm really stressed out about it. Sure. So I think part of the process for for people who have gone through it is to recognize like one there are these normal emotions, two I'm going to have them. Three they're not going to define me. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece around celebrations. like, I'm going to have a bad day. I'm going to have good days. That was true before breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It's certainly going to be true after breast cancer. That's because that's the normal human condition. And so that's a part of that process, too. It is oddly, I mean, this is not just true about cancer, but it is funny that it's especially true about cancer that once you've had it, then there's a tendency to link everything to it. You know what I mean? Like, wow, my earlobe's twitching. Because I got sunburn yesterday but it also could be that it's cancer of the earlobe
0: a <laughs> hundred yeah, percent I was that, going uh, to ask uh, you right, right like exactly we are so concerned about yep. everything like we're hypersensitive to yep. it and very alert
2: yep yeah no and that's and that's there's a piece about that so you know from a technical you know kind of diagnosis perspective like PTSD is, is a definite reference to a traumatic like an event right um whereas this is more like there's, there's a traumatic process
0: right? huh it's <laughs> it's drawn not,
2: out right, right, no no it's not like i had a really like I, this bomb blew up next to me and that was now i'm now kind of like hypersensitive to noise it's like nope for about a year yeah i've had my body poked and prodded it wasn't really mine to own i was like i rented it out to these doctors mm-hmm. and they managed it for a year and then they handed it back to me and said I have a good life yeah so, so that, that traumatic process, and which is a little different than a you know, one-time event, um, but I think that, that idea of just recognizing that uh, we can tend to think, well, like, if, if I'm having a bad day, is that because I had cancer? Well, no. I mean, it, those two facts are true,
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. but
2: correlation is not causation. So if I've had cancer and then four years later I have a bad afternoon at work, it could be because my boss is a jerk or my colleagues all bailed on me and I was left to do the work or right. whatever. Like, so, you know, there's, there's, so I think part of that idea of, so that's f- certainly true for the, the person going through it. I think for the family and the caregiver, it's sort of that that's the corollary, right? Is to recognize that not everything is about illness. Mm. Like you have a right to be upset about we ran out of coffee. Like that sucks, and I'm like, yeah, I would be mad too. But it's not because you had, a, you know, it's not because you had breast cancer five years ago, right. right? So, so I think that that concept of recognizing that, uh, and 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 part of the part of the work that I do with folks is recognizing. So there's the normalization piece, and then it's also recognizing like, it's not simply to say, well, you're upset. Okay, well, see you later. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'm not dealing with it. It's your upsetness. Um, is there like, like, well, what can I do to help? Like, you, the, the person who's gone through the breast cancer, gets to decide what kind of help do I need? What, are, what, what things are helpful to me? What things mm-hmm. are not helpful to me? And, and um, especially early on in the process, during the treatment process, and then um, even in survivorship, it's not uncommon for uh, people who you know somewhat to come up to you and say, oh my god, I heard you had cancer. How are you doing with that cancer? It's
0: like <laughs> The things not to say to cancer patients, yeah, right, Exactly. right? <laughs> there's a whole, like,
2: this would be a great stand-up routine. But I mean, like, the idea of like, uh, and I think that, and so what I say to people is like, you're going to get those, and you're going to get them at the sort of the most inopportune times. So it's not like you can hear that same exact question at your doctor's yeah. office for your 12-month review, and that makes sense, right? Like they're asking me how am I doing with my cancer. Like, sure. let, me, let me stop you
1: right there. You're 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 spot on. Now, what advice do you give that person who's walking up to a cancer survivor or someone who has been diagnosed?
2: What should they say? This is a real good point. <laughs> right. So so, what I encourage the person, the patient, the person who's had the breast cancer to say is. Here are the things that are helpful to me, and I really appreciate when people do those. And then also here are the things that are not helpful to me, and I really appreciate if you don't do those. And basically, you're aiming their good intentions. Intentions mm. are like water in the water in the gardening hose. Yeah. Like if you just turn it on. It goes everywhere, and sometimes it goes in the garden and on the grass, and sometimes it goes on that new laptop and on your leather interior and your new car. and you know. So, like, you really want to aim it. So the idea, though, is like, so you're standing there in the grocery store. You're just trying to get some cucumbers and lettuce because you just want a salad because mm-hmm. you're supposed to be eating right. And someone comes up to you who you haven't seen in a while, who heard from the grapevine that whatever – and, and they say, you know, oh, my God, I, I hope you, you know, you, 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 you're drinking lots of orange juice because I heard orange juice cures cancer because my cousin's third friend from college who had a guy he knew, yeah. his girlfriend did that, and she survived or whatever.
0: Absolutely.
2: Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. And so, what I say to people, like, I think the the right thing to, the right response to that is, like, you know what? I really appreciate you wanting to support me in how I'm managing my breast cancer, but I have to be honest. Those kind of weird war stories, they don't actually help me.
3: Yeah.
2: Right? So, I know your intention is to help, but Mm -hmm. that kind of story is really not helpful. I mean, people, the stories that I've heard, people I've heard is, you know, like, bizarre stuff you're like wow like how is that even remotely supposed to be helpful but
1: you know well, someone called a friend of mine called me and he told me about these magic mushrooms from japan and i said people who are eating those are dying and that's enough of this conversation but on the other hand uh advising those people coming up to the cancer and then what should they say so that so that it's 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 encapsulated in something positive
2: Well, i think part of it is recognizing like you know, sort of the, the question that I encourage people to, 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 uh, to, to ask is, like, well, how are you doing with the coping? You know, yeah. how are you, how you, how you holding up? You doing, you doing well? Now, like, what's going on? You know, the idea is that, and this is when, when I, I have a little handout I give to clients at the end of a first session, and at the bottom of it has a link to those videos I referred to earlier, the what's next class stuff. Mm-hmm. And I say to the patient, I say, send this to people you care about yeah send this to people who are in your circle who you want to support you uh and the reason for that is that cancer can become the focus of the conversation Mm -hmm. and i think in survivorship what you're really trying to do is shift the narrative from this is about my cancer to this is about my coping right right because and this is going to sound kind of snarky but you don't need any help with cancer like you've taken care of that sure it's all done yep all right in the back in the rearview mirror done that coping on the other hand is a ongoing process and that's Mm -hmm. coping is the kind of functional equivalent of establishing that new normal that's how you establish the new normal is by developing a plan where you can cope with what's coming at you and so having people engage you in a conversation about how's the coping going Mm -hmm. is that working well do you you know well, you know i heard People are coping doing exercise. I've heard people are you know, doing yoga retreats, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just the idea of like that, that then shifts the narrative from you know, what was wrong with your body right. to what is right with your approach. OK. Right? Yeah. And that turns out to be a really fundamental, because then it's a conversation about, well, you know, I've been doing this stuff. I have this podcast, blah, 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 blah. And, and people right. are then all of a sudden engaged in what is the positive part that you have and I think the, it all gets back to this very central, core nugget of all of it, which is that the thing that is really sort of attacked in cancer, aside from at the molecular level, is our sense of control mm-hmm. in life. And you get the diagnosis, and the minute you hear the, like I said earlier, the, oh my goodness, there's something on your mammogram comment. <laughs> That's the minute like control gets up and just walks out at that moment, yeah. right? And control doesn't come back.
3: Mm-hmm. In fact,
2: you have to go find it, uh, and you only have time to do that, you know, sure. in survivorship. So, so really recognizing like helping me focus as if I'm the breast cancer helping me focus on the things I'm doing to get that control back, helping me focus on the things I'm doing to gain control in my life, helping me focus on the things that. I feel are working well for me and i'm eliminating the things that are not working well for me those are the things that i think are really useful and i think that's the piece where and i think the thing is that because people have good intentions right it's it's hard to prescribe
0: oh, completely and say to
2: people you can only talk to me about the following five things because like <laughs> sure. wow that's not you're not going to be any fun at the cocktail party anymore right. um but on the other hand, it's like when you approach me i'm going to be honest about what's helpful to me
0: yeah no i i have so many responses to everything that you just talked about um so (laughs) that we're also recording this too for youtube because i'm just sitting here like nodding my head like yes i resonate with everything and how empowering is that to be able to tell somebody like this is what's working for me i Mm -hmm. was taking notes just saying i love even taking that moment of reflection to say this is useful for me this is not useful for me but then also to remind our listeners also that it's okay for what works for you, may not work for somebody else. So I always try and approach even like on the podcast or when we're connecting with others who've been diagnosed with breast cancer is what type of language do you prefer? Some people love the word survivor. Some people hate the word survivor. Some people, you know, feel empowered with like words like fight and warrior and they're like crushing it. And other people are like, no, I'm really like healing, you know, I'm living with cancer. And so I'm finding this way of coping that's healing every day. And, you know, <laughs> right, so and making
2: I, your peace with it versus beating the crap out of it. You know, those are exactly. all right. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: I think this approach, too, that you were saying also, William, of like, you know, what advice can we give others is really just asking for that permission, right? Like talking to the person to say, what works for you? How would? How could I best serve you? Right, right, right,
2: exactly. And I think also having the 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 patient feel empowered to articulate that. Yes. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where this is not a normal part of discourse. Right. When you meet someone, it's like, okay, here's the deal. Like when right. you talk to me, you need to talk <laughs> to me in the following way. It's like, that's not how we operate normally, right? right. But it, in this way, I think it's, a, it's important to say like, yeah, wow, you know, so I, and this is where I sort of say that you give the, the, the two lists simultaneously or in close you sure. know, connection with it. Because if you just give the good things, like, here's what I like, and this is what I'm really enjoying, da, 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 then the the general response is, well, let's give you more of that, right? Because more of a good thing has got to be good, right? right? Not always, but that's what we, that's our gut reaction, right? If we just tell the bad things, like, don't ever say that to me again. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I hate it when people, blah, blah, blah. Then of course you come across as kind of the negative, angry, you know, embittered, sure. <laughs> sure. patient. That's not very helpful either. So it's when you put the two together, mm. this balanced piece, which is to say, I, I like this part, this is what's working really well for me and I'm really enjoying doing that stuff, right. but I'm also staying away from all this stuff that I found doesn't help me. And, and that, and it's really, you're creating that, that dialogue. These are the words that I like to use that help me feel empowered. Mm-hmm. These are the words that I like to use and that I like to engage in conversation with people about because that's what helps me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the part that I do want to focus yes. on. And I think in the end, people's good intent, people want to be having a conversation with you about stuff that you want to be having a conversation about. Exactly. Right? So, so I think in, in the end, it turns out that I think people respond well to having that guidance. Um, and then just but from a caregiver's perspective, just recognizing like, you don't want to assume, right? Because if you come up like, you're crushing it, you're killing this thing, man, you're, and you're like, oh my God, like I am so anti-war <laughs> metaphors, right? And I, sure. the idea of having a battle going on in my body <laughs> Was 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 anxiety provoking for me, mm-hmm. um, and so some people are like all over that, and other people want to take a more, uh, you know, the 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 imagery of healing and of letting go of, mm-hmm. the, of of fighting the cancer, but also thinking about kind of being at one with their wellness and all that. Kind. Exactly. those are also really positive and really healthy, um, and so you can't assume at the on you know on the surface.
3: Exactly, uh,
2: and also just one of those things like if you look at somebody and think, oh, that's totally a warrior.
3: Mm-hmm. She's
2: gonna be like all over this, like you know, like fire, and then just like oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> not how she operates at all, and like oh crap, and like I'm right. just then because then you leave this conversation like wait, was I supposed to be a warrior? If I'm not a warrior, am I not doing it right?
3: right. and
2: that sets up all these kind of things later, yeah. like you know, if people have to come in and there's like a assist or whatever, they think oh my god, like if I'd only been a warrior, right, I wouldn't have had this recurrence, I wouldn't have had this other thing happen, and mm-hmm. so that's people get, it's like trying to you know kind of outthink the odds mm-hmm. you know and so and we tend to just link the things that happen and say there's some causality to that mm-hmm. so i ate at you know fast food restaurants probably more than i should have and i did like the red wine a little bit you know and, da, da, da. and then you think maybe if i hadn't done all that i wouldn't have gotten breast cancer and it turns out of course that most the, the vast majority of breast cancers are random okay. so right uh so statistically that's not a game you can really play and feel like you're going to win because you're always going to be like, it's like, you know, betting against the house in Vegas. Sure. Like you just, <laughs> that's not how well, the it's odds that work.
0: Control piece too, right? Totally, like you want right. to link it back to like, what was the cause? Yeah. And to talk to your doctors of like, well, we actually don't know, especially if your genetics come back negative, right. like, like, okay, I'll just have to live with this ambiguity that I was the lucky chosen one. Right,
2: like, which is a hard place to sit. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And, wow. and I think that, and there's also, like when I talk to my clients about a lot, it's just, so let's just play devil's advocate. Say we could go back in time mm. and microanalyze everything that you did from the time you were two mm-hmm. to the time you got breast cancer. And let's just do it in slow motion, right? Just because that's really fun. <laughs> And then we find it. There it was. You were 13 years old, you stay out in the sun for 10 minutes too long, and boom, that was the thing that triggered him. Okay, so now we found it out.
3: Mm -hmm. Now what? Now what do we do? Exactly. Yeah.
2: That happened, right? And the time frame is critical because what is the common experience is people will float off, the two time frames people float off to is the past and think, why and what happened, and mm-hmm. if only I could figure it out, this would be different. Or we float off toward the future and think, well, the statistics say that if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll have a 2% rate of recurrence, blah, blah, blah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, the, and the floating off to the future is mostly our fault. <laughs> <laughs> True, full disclosure, it's mostly our fault, because that's what we market our treatments on. right? Mm-hmm. The reason why we want you to go through this hellscape of treatment is because we think it's going to have this beneficial effect in the, in the long run. Those two time frames have one thing in common. Zero control. Right. right. And so whenever you sit there, you're in those two time frames, you are going to feel the most amount of distress. Yeah. That is the, and, and that's not because, you know, this is about breast cancer or about gender or whatever. It's about the fact that any human being that focuses on something that's outside of their control feels more distressed more sadness, regret, depression, I think, in the past, and more worry and uncertainty toward the future. But, you know, nevertheless, it's this kind of concept. I always share like, if you can touch it, you can control it. And if you can't touch it, you can't control it. That kind of boils down to the, what the premise is,
0: right? And so so you just described me right there. Like, you figured it out. <laughs> like... <laughs> Thank you for coming. Don't leave <laughs> <a moment.
2: laughs> This is, this yeah. is what you should just draw. I have to drop the mic
0: exactly. and walk out.
1: right? <laughs> Now, from uh, from a reoccurrence position, so, so so you've been treating someone and they've um, they've followed up and they've done their due diligence and they've they've become their own best advocates and they've really watched their diet. They're into health and wellness yep. and it reoccurs. Yep. And they 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 went through all the coping mechanisms. They, yep. They, how do you revisit that with them?
2: Well, because it's it's sort of so the. The, the core guiding principle that arises out of this concept of, of control is embodied in the question, uh, am I doing the best I can with what I got right now to make the most out of today, right? So, and each part of that, you know, like just quickly, the am I doing, you're still in charge of you, the best I can, that hasn't changed, right? So your core values are the same, that with what I got part does change while you're in treatment and whatever, and then right now is my time. That is a bullet item of my, of my coping model. So, the idea then is if it recurs, then I focus, bring my focus on, well, what do I have control over right now? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a, like, what do I have control over? It's like, am I there yet? Mm-hmm. Except, do I have any control over this? What part of this do I have control sure. over? And, and the good news is that, and this is the I mean, good news, in, I guess in quotes, but it's a good news in, the, in, the, in writ large, I think, is that there is a treatment plan available and I think if one can imagine in these major hospitals around the, and around the world, there's like a, a big, there isn't, there isn't really, but it's, it's just imagine like there's a whole wall and in it are these little cubby holes and each one has a treatment plan
3: mm-hmm. and
2: there's a treatment plan for people who are, you know, who have the genetics of, you know, PDL whatever uh, and there's another one for that whether it's negative and if it's HER2 positive or it's ER negative or ER positive or whatever. And, and there's ones for the primary treatment, and then there's ones for recurrence or whatever. And the idea is we don't know which one to pick until we've done all those genetic workups. But then once we've figured out all the data, then we pick that one out of the, and we give it, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So when, so and this is about, so fear of recurrence, right, mm. is probably the in the top one um, yeah, <laughs> fear. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. I was going to say top five, but it probably isn't the top one. <laughs> it <isn't> top one. <laughs> Um and uh, I, have, I have yet to meet a survivor
1: who didn't think it was coming back. I have not met one who said it's definitely not coming back. When they when you ask them, especially if you're you're sitting down, you're having a nice conversation, it's yep. over a meal or a cup of coffee, how you doing, getting back and forth, talking about the all of the coping mechanisms. Yep. Do you think it'll come back? Do you have that fear? Yep. Every single one. Every single one has said yes, absolutely.
2: Yep, I haven't met one yet. Right, so it's not unreasonable then, right, <laughs> to think really people weird. might have a fear of that. That's yes. right. Right. Yes. So, and the one, the way one manages that fear, right, is by doing like exactly you said, Laura, which is just like, I've got to then put my energy on what is tangible,
3: mm-hmm. what
2: is real, what is here. I can't go back and change that time when I was seven and I stayed out in the sun for ten minutes too long, and I can't go into the future and decide, oh well, wait a minute, you know if I'm gonna win the lottery next mm-hmm. year, well then screw it, I'm, you know, I'm going to Fiji and I'm just gonna you know, have yeah. a good time, right? So we can't go those two time frames, the past and future, we have no traction in. Okay. So the best way to manage that fear of recurrence is to recognize if I'm actually doing the best mm-hmm. I can, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, whatever, uh, that's where my traction is. Mm-hmm. Then, if it comes back, then I have to get the next treatment plan, and that's, and then I'm like, and, but this time, the second time, you're not a rookie. Right. Not your first time at the rodeo, right? Mm-hmm. You know how to go in, and when you talk to your oncologist, and the oncologist is like, well, we could do X, we could do Y, you go like, no, no, we need to come up with a plan. Yes. I want a plan, and I want it, I want it now. <laughs> <laughs> right? You need, you all of a sudden become a much stronger advocate for it because you know, that when you're a strong advocate for yourself, mm-hmm. you get what you need. You get what you you get what you deserve. And so then that's part of this process is recognizing that that we can't I mean, the fear of recurrence is obviously it's it's very specific to cancer, but it is truly the fear of what might happen in the future.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And for any of us who are paying attention to the environmental world you know yeah. issues or the political <laughs> issues in the world. And it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum. Like the uncertainty of what's about to happen in the next six months, six years, whatever. Like you know, a lot of people have anxiety about that, Um, and people have anxiety about the economy, and you know, whether Mm -hmm. my job will be here, and all those kind of things. And and so, all of those things are fears about the future, Mm -hmm. and all of those things have that thing in common, which is uncertainty, Mm -hmm. right? And you'll you sort of when you go over and edit this, you'll be. (laughs) <laughs> Here, there's, like, there's a few themes that Dave has to kind of perseverate on, but that's one of them, right? Like the, the, this idea of uncertainty is the thing. That's the enemy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have treatment plans for illness. And if we wait 15 minutes, we'll have more treatment plans for illness. In the time we're doing this podcast, there will be more treatments becoming available for patients with you know, various stages of breast cancer. My my Uh, response to
1: Laura, over the last uh, multiple years uh, with regards to survivorship, when she would bring up that point, I would ask her, I I would ask, well, are you talking about recurring next year or 20 years? I said, if it's next year, then you know how you're going to be going through the various treatment plans. If it's in 20 years, they're gonna give you a pill and it'll be gone.
2: Yeah, or they'll have one of those recorder things I like did on mm-hmm. Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, all right, thanks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, no, I think that's the thing. is, like, So that's a part of this process um, that, and this is where I tell people a lot, like basically with cancer treatment, you want to be as healthy as you can to keep going as long as you can because in the interim, the things that right now are fatal will then become chronic. The things that are chronic now will become cured, mm-hmm. right? And there'll be other things. I mean, you know, you may have to swim to work and there might be a variety of other things that, that, other challenges, but uh, some of that can be, you know, fixed with kayaks and other things. So, so, yeah.
0: Love it. We are, um, I was thinking you were talking about this, point in time where it's like before cancer, my life before cancer, yes. then an event happens, and then life after cancer. Yep. And just recently, we are doing a campaign within our breast cancer community at survivingbreastcancer.org, where people are posting their pictures going through chemotherapy or radiation. And so there's typically like this really horrific, gruesome photo that we're like super proud of because we endured something crazy. Yeah. With a picture of one year out or two years out or five years out. And what I love about this campaign, so to speak, that everyone is just kind of following into is it's not the picture of me before I lost my hair. This is like the picture of me looking probably at my absolute worst, fatigued, tired, no eyelashes, in contrast to one year later, look how much my hair has grown. Mm -hmm. Look at this. Look how great I'm doing now. And it's really choosing what William was saying is this like positive spin on something that was quite negative, but right. then also accepting and embracing, maybe like the first step in the new normal, right? right? Like, what? What? My hair's curly now. Like, this is awesome. I have no idea what to do with it. <laughs> right, right, um, exactly. But you get a new hairstyle for a little while. Um, right. You know, there's like part of this coping. I think is like the acceptance and the recognition piece. And I still remember, and I'm sure there's people out there listening to who. That first time when you're, like, fatigued or stressed or pissed off at something at work that's so mundane and you're, mm. like, well, nobody died. It's not like cancer. And you're, mm. like, right. Because right. I'm actually annoyed at this, like, really stupid thing and it right. feels so good. Right. <laughs> so, so happy
2: to be annoyed that someone didn't clean yeah. up the, the work sink. <laughs> right. No, totally.
0: Right. So that's always, like, another milestone for me, too. was like, right. okay, this is... I, mean, I think that, and that's, mm-hmm.
2: a, that's, a, that's a, one of those milestones along the journey toward reestablishing what the new normal yes. looks like, that I can mm-hmm. look at this. And this is, I talked with a client um, a while ago uh, who talked about like getting out of the shower and looking herself in the mirror, and for a while was like, oh, my God, like, that can't be me.
0: Yeah.
2: There's, the dents are not where the dents are supposed to be. There are too many dents.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> there are too many dings, too many scars.
3: Absolutely. I don't like
2: the hair. I don't like the hair. I and mean, I've heard this from countless people. And that there was an evolution of, and so my advisor was you know, the sound <laughs> sounded mean at the time, but like, just take quick glances.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Just get your head wrapped around that. But you can't go out and get your head wrapped around something like you can, uh, you know, eat a whole pizza, right? Like, you just can't just force yourself to do it. Mm-hmm. And so part of the process is just recognizing, like, your body may look different but it it is your body and uh it may not work exactly the same way in terms of sexual function or whatever and that's a part of this process is beginning to think about well how do i navigate that how do i have a com- how do i have a conversation with that and how do i let my loved one my intimate loved one know like right. i want to be close i want to be intimate but i'm not sure i like what's here and i'm worried that you might not like it and, right. and so and there's a whole conversation about that as well and i think that's part of the so from the caregiver's perspective is just being open to that conversation uh and then from the from the patient's perspective just recognizing like I, I want to approach this topic and i want to feel safe doing that but how do i do that and so being to have so putting some of the words to that but just recognizing like that there's a that the new normal has sort of like and i think of this these are the three main domains our physical body mental and emotional right um and that the the new normal of what my body looks like is i'm going to have to kind of come to terms with that if it's you know sometimes there's mastectomies and and implants and sometimes there's you know the the exterior of the breast looks different sometimes mm-hmm. you know just the interior looks different like so there's just different ways and and thinking about like how do i want to uh one of the ways to come to peace with that is to, to sort of allow yourself to sort of and this, this is not the right verb but to expose yourself to that um mentally and emotionally but in small bits mm-hmm. don't just say i'm going to just stand at myself stark naked in the mirror until i love that right because that's going to be wrenching and it's going to yeah. be hard and it's going to be a slow process but it does come yeah. it does happen and i think that's a part of that 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 so the so there's new normal around physical mm-hmm. there's new normal about how i think about the world and how i think about my how i make my way in the world and what's important to me like you know i used to get really pissed off when someone didn't put the new ink cartridge in the printer at work <laughs> yep. and i would go ballistic and then I was like, like you said, like, oh, no one died, so that's okay. Right. And then there's also the numeral emotionally. Like, there are, I, I, I care about things in a different way. Mm-hmm. I care about different things. I care about the same things more, more yes. or less, uh, depending on what it is. So, so, and that's one of the reasons why this is a process, not a destination, right, is that all three of those things are co-occurring okay and you don't get to say to yourself i am just going to adjust physically for the next month (laughs) and i'm going to put my mental and emotional adjustment on hold Mm -hmm. and then i'll come back like i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna put that in a safety deposit box at the bank right and then i'll come back in a month and i'll get the emotional stuff out and i'll put the physical back and then you know we don't do it that way right our bodies are evolving
0: this is so helpful i think a lot of things that you're mentioning are things that those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer do sometimes but if we had this toolkit in advance right. like oh my gosh we wouldn't be overthinking half of it i know right. especially when you're talking about like, the physical changes like i definitely remember like you know waking up from surgery and like taking a peek under the gauze like right. just a quick like just a quick glance i just wanted to see yeah um not too long and right. then even like a year out later realizing um i had radiation as well so mm-hmm. that's still Even, you know, 12 months later, your body is still responding to that type of treatment, too. So it is a process. I think a lot of it is just, you know, we don't know what to expect. It is that uncertainty. I Mm -hmm. think that's very true. I also want to kind of tie this into a couple other podcasts that we had where we were speaking with some other doctors. And we were speaking with a radiologist who was mentioning, you know, did I give too much information too quickly and too fast? Mm-hmm. Someone just walked into my office, they had a mammogram, it was a routine mammogram, and then she left after having a biopsy. Mm-hmm. Did I give her too much too soon? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it better to say, get a call back, come back in for an ultrasound, and take our time? And you know, I think that was a really great question, and what I appreciate about what our organization is able to do is take that question and literally put it out there and ask people. And it, right. everyone said, we wanna know, rip the band-aid off, tell us yeah. more is good, better. Like you don't want to be in this limbo of like anxiety and waiting and uncertainty. Right. So I just want to reiterate that to you too, is that this is something that we do hear constantly. Right, no,
2: no, and Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the thing is that yeah. I've heard several stories. People said, well, I got a call on Friday afternoon around four from the radiologist and they said, we found something on your mammogram, looks like cancer. You should call a surgeon. Have a good after. have a good weekend.
3: Yes. And you're like, Fridays. what?
2: <laughs> yeah no, right like no one should do anything on Fridays, right so right. so uh, and I think that's part of the recognizing that having the information so that but that's part of the question though, right is that in actual fact, we the providers can't get the information all at mm-hmm. once. so right. there's there's the scan and then there's the biopsy, and then there's sending out for genetic information, which can take two weeks mm-hmm. right So that's as fast I mean again current science being what it is right so if we have the same podcast a year from now we're like no no 15 minutes you should that's all you have to wait right totally. right totally. but so as far as i know and that's you know whatever time it is today um you know so there is that time frame and i think that's part of, so then the question becomes during that time frame
3: mm-hmm.
2: what do patients have the right responsibility what what do you want to do mm-hmm. to fill that time with getting informed and this is where the prophylactic stress management piece comes in which is like saying you're in this weird space right now there's no answer to that but the emotional part actually is not about breast cancer Mm -hmm. it's about control right and so we can say no matter what your diagnosis. So you can come at me with prostate. Well, you aren't going to come at me with prostate cancer, but you know right. somebody else could, right? Sure. um <laughs> I'm just guessing. <laughs> I mean, you know, we don't know each other that well, right. but I'd say it's, but you know, like the idea is like um it doesn't matter what because you know I heard that story from a guy who had prostate cancer. I've heard that story from women all the time with breast cancer. I've heard right. that story from people who come in with a large lump on their neck, and it turns out it's something really benign and then it turns out like oh wait but that you know and then, so then later they find out that maybe you know something else wasn't benign or whatever so i think there's ways in which if we think about the larger concept and this is where i find the work kind of interesting right is that uh it actually turns out not to matter quite so much what the actual disease process is but recognizing that that disease process as formulated by whatever the, the results will show is uh Causing a rise in uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? Is attacking your sense of control, yeah. your sense of certainty, and that's the enemy. And that in those two weeks, while you're waiting for those results, that's the enemy. Mm-hmm. You were. I, I'm going to go back to um, a
1: couple of thoughts ago, where you're talking about the physiological makeup and and the advice to um, a, a breast cancer survivor who really had a great deal of difficulty dealing with the the bumps and bruises and the cuts and scars and whatnot, and um, ask you to expand upon this sexual relationship and and the effect of sexual relationships, and we get that a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of discussion, and um, I think folks would like to hear from you. That was one of the questions I had for Yeah, yeah,
0: no, totally. So, you know... If I can add just a little bit to piggyback off of that because you're absolutely right. I think it's, you know, one of the top questions that we get that we don't have the answers to and Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure it out, yeah. um, but to be the voice also for those who are incredibly young who've been diagnosed with breast cancer as well. Questions of fertility, of um, how do I date, how do I bring this up, if I've right. completely lost my sex drive, if I've completely, like, my body has changed mm-hmm. and I'm thrown into medical menopause, and I, I mean, outside of a support group and just talking with people, I really don't have a lot of information to share, so right. looking to... right. So
2: it, it's a whole area of study, and there's yeah. but but it's a whole area of study that's not studied by a lot of people. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and you know some of the major medical centers, you know, don't have somebody. Right. You right. know, Dana Farber has one person um, who's great, uh, but um, you know, I think part of this process is just recognizing that. So so a lot of what I recommend is more about sort of sexual health uh, from a kind of psychological emotional perspective. Um, There's a fair, and so it depends on what the question is, right? So, like, uh, for uh, fertility management for young women who are going through Mm this, uh, you know, there's a whole process of egg preservation. And then infertility work, which is, you know... Uh, there's a whole degree of science and that's, you know, like 10 podcasts worth of stuff sure. that one could talk about. So i um, will have you back then, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, that, uh, <laughs> so there's things to do to preserve that. There's also I think important to recognize, like, there's ways to parent that don't require giving birth to a child. So there's lots yes. of that kind of thing. So um, if parenting is a driving force, then recognizing, but I would say, so this is my sort of reiterating again, like if that's a major uh, driving force in who you are as a person uh, then you want to bring that up up front you want to say mm-hmm. to somebody t- say to your doctor this is something that's really important to me you need to help me think through what my cheaper options given that that's one of my strong things now for yes. this the people who might be listening to this podcast where a lot of that chip has already sailed sure and part of it's just recognizing that um you know I, I, I would hope that you know centers would talk to people about fertility preservation um, and if not then obviously there are things around sure. you know fertility clinics and all that kind of stuff that can be can be addressed. I think around the sexuality piece uh, you know there's a whole body of research around sexual um, health and, and sort of healthy sexuality so okay. the other inverse of that and yeah. and um, I, I think the general formats are, are, are one. Uh, remembering that physical intimacy is a uh, expansion upon emotional intimacy Mm. uh, when it's done healthily. I mean, I'm not talking about the, you know, like I was in college and kind of half drunk and hammered and she's, they, you know, whatever. Like, (laughs) that's not intimacy. That's just sex. And that's lust. And, um, you know, uh, people don't need a lot of help with lust. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, then you don't worry about it so much. Sure love and intimacy is something that you want with your partner, um, and mm-hmm. if you don't have a partner, you want a partner who you can have it with. Uh, yep. so, so I think in that sense, so with that caveat, yeah. um, that uh, if we think about rebuilding intimacy, so it's what's very common in the work that I've heard and talked about with folks, is that they had a, a thriving sex life, the patient and her mm-hmm. husband or partner, and uh, and then all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt, obviously during treatment, cause yeah. Talk about bandwidth. There's like no bandwidth for that, right? <laughs> um, and also, you're not physically feeling up to it, right? And so so I think part of it is recognizing like that's sort of like everyone rec- recognizes like that's a time for a timeout. Yep. But intimacy can be nurtured even during that place, right? And so part of the recognition, like when I'm in treatment, what intimacy looks like is, you know, I want to be able to fall asleep on your shoulder. I want you to just to hold me. There's an old joke in psychology that um, you know the the usual invocation is don't just sit there do something, mm-hmm. uh, and in psychology the invocation is don't just do something sit there.
0: <laughs> I like it. Right? Yeah. So
2: it's okay just to sit and be a partner in this process, and this is you know so that's yeah sort of obviously true during treatment when you're. Have like 20% energy, and what you really want to do is just watch Netflix or whatever. Gosh,
0: um, she knows me so well.
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm not judging, could have been Hulu, right? Whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but the, sort of, in the aftermath of this, you're beginning to sort of think about that part of one's life, right? Mm-hmm. That you think about sort of starting with the most basic, which is just, I want to spend time with my partner. Right. And I just want to be with my partner. And so that kind of means that I need to make sure that other needs are taken care of. So that's a great time to hire a babysitter or have my mother or mother-in-law or father or right. father-in-law or somebody, my sister, brother, whoever, uh, come and babysit the kids so that we can just go be together. But the expectation is being together, mm-hmm. right? Not like, let's get a babysitter and let's go to a hotel and like have sex all night and then come home again. like that. Right. That's not the expectation the expectation is let's start from the, the emotional piece of it and yes. build that intimacy rebuild and rekindle and the fact is it hasn't gone anywhere it's just been like you have to sort of get it off the shelf and dust sure. it off a little bit and and that takes some time and then um, so that again so this is I, I frame everything in sort of these three boxes of the physical mental and emotional so first is just recognizing like we want to reestablish the emotional connection um, and and part of what that's it's, it's interesting that's it's harder than it sounds but part of it's because it requires the, the The woman who's gone through breast cancer to recognize like I don't want to be a patient right now mm-hmm. I've been a patient for a year and change
3: mm-hmm.
2: And when I'm with you, I don't want to be a patient. I want to be your partner. I want to be your lover I want to be your wife. I want to be your girlfriend, yeah. whatever um, and uh, That's just like that's that's a role image, right? Because you spend a lot of time being a patient. Yeah. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're a patient even when you're not at the hospital, mm-hmm. right? When you're at home at 20%, like, I'm totally a patient. Like, I'm done. <laughs> D-U-N, yeah. done. Stick a fork and turn me over. I'm done, right? Yeah. So, so this idea of I need to step out of that role. And, and what oftentimes happens is that when a, a woman's going through breast cancer treatment, Oftentimes, in the best-case scenario, the husband sort of steps up and takes on a lot of the other responsibilities. So one of the things that's important is that as you enter into survivorship is to, as the wife is healing, or the the woman's healing, that she began to take on more of what she had let go of. And then the husband or the partner has to step back and allow her to do that, Mm. right? So... Uh, it's very tempting when someone's gone through treatment to be like, oh, don't get up, I'll get you that. Yeah, no, 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 don't don't worry about it. I'll, I'll do the shopping. No, 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 honey, you you, you rest, you rest, you're good. I, I got sure. this. And it's like at some point you're like, no. No, no, I need, to, I, I want to go. I mean, I don't really want to go to the grocery store, <laughs> but I want to go to the grocery store because right. I need to do that. I need to confront that person who's going to get me at the, <laughs> while I'm getting lettuce. I need to talk to them. Yeah. But like, you know, like that idea of like, I need to start reclaiming Right. my normal self
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that is basically with some of the basic things like yes I do want to start paying my bills or doing my laundry or whatever but and I realize it sounds like it's a fair stretch from intimacy but it, it's the idea of like as I build back the normal part one of those normal parts is spending time with my partner
3: Right.
2: and then I start that as an emotional level and then as I build that in and I, I shift my thinking from I'm a patient to I'm a person and a partner Then we start thinking about uh, just spending time physically together, and with the idea that the expectation is, uh, for the woman's like, I need she needs to get used to her body, Mm -hmm. and the partner needs to get used to her body, and and that that's oftentimes just lying together,
0: right?
2: Just lie together. No expectation of performance. No expectation of. We're just gonna kind of do this because we used to do it. Whatever. Right. It's like, no, no. Let's just spend that time together. And that's a that's both a physical intimacy, and an emotional intimacy builder. Then part of the process is recognizing there are things, there are changes that happen, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're on an estrogen-depleting medication where there's vaginal dryness and there's other things. And mm-hmm. so there are lubricants that do help with some of the physiological uh, piece of that, in you know, intercourse. Um, and so, but part of that even, you know, even as you use those, right, mm-hmm. it's about we're not going to, like, you go into the other room dose yourself up with whatever you need to, and then come back in, it's more like, no, we're gonna do this together. Because this intimate act is something that we do together. Mm -hmm. And so that's a part of that process, is thinking about how do I build that in. and. Um, and, and the truth is that a lot of times the male partners are very skittish about. I don't want to hurt her. Like she's been yeah. through hell. Like the last thing I want to do is cause her pain. Are you kidding me? Like mm-hmm. talk about yeah. performance things. Right? <laughs> like I don't want to yeah. do this wrong. I don't want to hurt. And so so all of that's in your head, right? Mm-hmm. So that's part of why I say, don't start with like. Let's jump right back into where we were, which is like, you know however many times a week, sure. and you know went on for you know whatever. Um, it's really more like let's build in that sense of safety and that sense of intimacy, and then once we're getting feeling like that's pretty good and then things are reactions are happening, like you yeah. don't have to teach yourself how to be sexually aroused that's just baked into our DNA mm-hmm. um, and then you can make sure that you know you have the the moisturizers or whatever mm-hmm. the lubricants that allow your body to feel that in a way that is more comfortable. Uh, and then you kind of you find whatever the right balance is for that. Mm-hmm. And for some people, you know, uh, it's going right back to where they were. And other people find like, well, that's not as important. I really like this other piece better. And then we spend more time doing that. Um, but it, sort of the the if there was any general rule that allows you to, to sort of uh, guide yourself through that is really recognizing like, let's talk about it. Yeah. Like, is this feeling okay? It does this hurt? Does that hurt? Um, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to spend time, spend, I I just want to be together in this way. Um, And, uh, you know, and that allows you then to think about like maybe showering together is a way of just doing that and spending time, you know, in an intimate way um, without any kind of like, this doesn't have to be a porn movie, right? right? Like it's just, it just is a, um, it's finding different ways to be intimate and, you know, go on a bike ride, go sailing, you know, do go to a movie, go out right. to dinner. Like all those things are variations on spending time and reconnecting as a couple as equal people rather than as the patient and her caregiver. Mm-hmm. Right. And that role, which is really important in the X number of months that you are actually, you know, going through cancer treatment, um, is to recognize that, okay, and this is one of the challenges of stepping into survivorship, is like we need to let go of this role, which, you know, that's a pretty important role to me yeah just no lie like i didn't that I, I didn't do I, I didn't do being a cancer patient kind of like on a whim right like on a dare from my buddy yeah. like no no this is sort of a life and death thing for me and so i put my whole heart and soul into it so to step away from that feels a little weird mm-hmm. and that's a lot of where that grieving the loss of what the uh, the uh, the intangible part was was just recognizing like how do I then step back into being a full person knowing that I can't go back to benign innocence? Because in benign innocence, the sex was great,
3: yeah. <laughs> right?
2: And so now I'm in this idea of, like, all right, well, I now have a place to think about myself, uh, and I want to invite my partner to enjoy it with me. Uh, and But there's a the technique from a sex therapy perspective. It's called sensate focus, uh, and people can google that and it there's a whole lot of stuff written about that but basically the idea is that it's it's intimate touch with no performance expectation uh and the touch is full body and it's you know all sorts of places and you get to explore like because sometimes the erogenous zones have shifted sure. <laughs> right especially sure. if like so for some women uh, and obviously, this is one. Uh, it may be or may not be that because breasts are such a big part of our society and sure. sexual identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're certainly a big part of the sexual experience uh, for many people. Uh, but if you've had a mastectomy, that breast doesn't respond well or the same as it did before. The mm-hmm. sensation there can be numbness around the nipple and around other parts of your body, right. you'd be like, "Oh, that would, used to be a real turn-on, and now it's like, eh, whatever." Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't not do anything for me. Yeah. Um, but there may be other parts of your body, and that's part of the thing of mm. the exploration. It's part of, the, well, let me let me kiss over here and see how that works, and let me, you know, so so that piece is a is a way of, I think, uh, having that spirit of exploration, and we're with the idea like we're gonna be kind of uh, re-equalizing ourselves, mm. and my part, you know, the woman can think, well, my partner's gonna let go of taking care of me like I'm sick and taking care of me like I'm a partner, and I'm going to step into that role of not being sick and not needing to be you know, taken care of all the time. Right. But that means I get to be a little bit more autonomous. I get to say what I want, what I like, and what I don't want, and and I wanna do this, and I wanna set time aside for that. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of, so that's sort of, I mean, you know, any particular case, uh, there are specific nuances that you'd go into more. But I think as an overview about sexuality, I think that's a way of thinking about it that allows a couple to sort of reestablish the new normal.
1: Sage advice.
0: I was about to say, thank you so much for, like, (laughs) taking that question and, like, really diving deep into it. Because, I mean, you just gave great tactics and, like, takeaways that anyone listening to this can, like, implement and start doing. And I really appreciate that. Because a lot of times it's a, like, it's the elephant in the room. Yeah. No one wants to talk about it. Right. It's uncomfortable. It's anicky um, topic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here on a podcast, where no one can like really see us, right? And we can <laughs> right. talk about it. Right, so, right, right. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, I think so. That's wonderful. I. We'll turn things over to you because I've been taking notes this whole time yeah. to like give a recap. But right. I feel like this conversation could go on for I know, so many
1: more hours. I know, and, I, just, more hours. <laughs> I, know, and I, I don't want to hold David forever, but I wanted him to chat just briefly. I meant to show that earlier. That's part of your little SWOT analysis uh, slide that you. Had, oh yeah, you right, put right, up. right. Yep. And that, because we're gonna be we're gonna be posting the uh, your uh, PowerPoint presentation as a resource for people, and and they can we'll we'll announce it in the uh, in in the podcast or the. Intro or the close to, to reference that to go back into it. So mm-hmm. just to talk just briefly about what that uh, analysis was.
2: Yeah. So this is um, so the slide for the listeners. Uh, it has four columns, and there's the goals, the barriers, and the strengths, and the plan. And I think the the um, the way I think about how you approach this problem solving way. And so I'm I'm a very practical guy. Like I like practical solutions and and. One of the things I think about when talking, just to harken back to one of the things you said before about like when should I give the information, is it too much, or whatever. Uh, and my general purview, when I've said to my colleagues is give all the information that's actionable as soon as you can.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The information that's not actionable, you can hold off on. So we've had this thing with genetic testing where people have these values of unknown significance which is really super useful. Yes, raise your hand if you've had that experience. Um, that uh, an evaluation is an incredibly useful thing for the medical community, because over time, we're gonna add up all those values of unknown significance, and we're gonna see what they correlate with, and then they're all of a sudden gonna have a known significance, and that they will no longer be unknown. For the person who has them, they are, you know, useless data. It's like saying to you, you know, like, the microgravity on Mars is five. I'm not even sure that makes sense. But, like, just say that's what it is. So there you go. So now you go ahead and you live your life with that fact in mind and just try to figure out, like, how does that affect me? Like, what does that do? How do I change my behavior? What do I do differently? Do I do the same things? Uh, and the answer is a, I don't know, right. and that's a really unsatisfying thing to hear from your doctor. I don't know, like that. Just no right. one wants. So to hear early
0: that. on, too, because yeah, you totally. get all of this, yeah, right, like right up front.
2: So, so the idea is, I think, give actionable information as early as you can, and for 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 patients and their families to ask for the actionable information, and to say like, if you have information that I can't act on right now, it's okay. To be like, you know what? I'm gonna. There's other stuff I can tell you, but there's nothing I can tell you that's going to help you decide what to do. And as I know information that's going to be actionable, I will tell you. Um, so that being, that's the sort of the premise around how much information to get. Because sometimes you get people give you a ton of information, and after. You have cancer. The rest of it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher, and that's like I, I, you had me a cancer, and that's right. Right, so you don't hear it. So having providers recognize like I'm going to give you this information that's actionable, help you come to terms with what to do about that, and then I'm going to give you the next dose of information once it's actionable, and I'll help you come to terms with that. But right. giving you all the stuff that's unactionable within plus one piece that is actionable means the one actionable piece gets lost in the shuffle, and people feel overwhelmed. And then later we'll say, my doctor never told me that I would have blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, actually, they did, but they told you that in the middle of everything Everything. else. And it's like, yeah. So someone told me the winning lottery ticket number in the middle of Times Square, (laughs) and I didn't quite catch it. So that's why I'm not a millionaire right now. Um, So anyway, so that being said, so the goal, barrier, strength, and plan piece is just recognizing that I think this is what I help my clients think about like first let's set some goals and these are all within the premise of the physical mental and emotional so the goals is no more complicated than if we have a goal we know what to aim toward and it's like you can go on a trip but if you don't have a destination you're really just driving around so having some goals for yourself uh can really help kind of structure that process and that's One of the conversations we try to have in palliative care, our colleagues in palliative care are great about this, and we try to encourage all of our primary uh, colleges to talk about this too, what are the goals of care, right? Mm -hmm. Like having a goals of care conversation. And this is something even in survivorship, like it's never too late to have the goals of care conversation. Um, And then we talk about barriers in the sense that that's the the stuff that's getting in the way of you achieving the goal, right? Uh, And barriers tend to be, somewhat negative, right, like I don't have the, it's not been, t- time hasn't passed yet, I don't know how this is all going to turn out, I don't have the money for that, I haven't filled out the paperwork yet, there's all sorts of barriers. I don't think of them as being necessarily, I mean, we don't dwell on them as being the problem, like, God, it must suck to be you for this problem, but more recognizing, like, that is the focus of what we're trying to fix, yeah. right? So that 's the whole point of a barrier, and obviously, there are barriers to everything like i don 't wake up fully clothed in the morning that's a barrier to me going to work i can 't go to work in my pajamas i've tried it it doesn 't work out <laughs> so but i don't have any barrier to getting dressed like I know where my clothes are. Sure. I can get dressed in the dark, as you can tell um, so so I think uh that's not a fundamental barrier, but it's a, it's right. a bit like. I overcome that barrier and then I go to work every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we talk about the barriers as something, that's the thing we're gonna try to focus and fix on. Then the strengths are literally both what you already bring to the table. So your work ethic, your love of your family, their love for you, we, you know, you sort of know what your strengths are and you, I think it's good to reflect on those strengths, mm-hmm. right? That's a big part of this also. And people oftentimes don't know all their strengths. In fact, that's one of the processes that comes out. Like I had no idea why I was this tough right. <laughs> man. I thought I was a wuss and I'm right. kicking ass right now. <laughs> this is great. So so I think sometimes it's just useful to reflect on those strengths. The other piece about the strengths though is that you can also build new strengths.
3: Hmm.
2: And that's where the coping strategies come in, right? That's the work that I'm doing. People saying, I'm not trying to change what you do already. I'm saying, okay, that's those are the tools that are already in your toolbox. But for most people, it's not like you've been doing this cancer thing a really long time. Yeah. right? Like, there are some people who have had recurrences. But for the most part, this is everyone's first day at the rodeo. Yeah. And so you don't know what skills, what tools work when mm-hmm. you're trying to face cancer, as opposed to other things. So um, the idea is that the barriers don't tend to grow. Like, there are certain barriers, like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. That's a barrier. And it stays the same for a really long time, yeah. right? But strengths, you can add new strengths. Okay. I'm really good at this, but I can also get better at this part. I've recognized I was really shy before, uh, and quiet, and I was really well read, but I've recognized that actually, when I go to a support group, and I reach out to a, like survivingbreastcancer.org, and I reach out to my, my resources, all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I know what I'm gonna do. Yeah. I'm going to join a dragon boat, or I'm going to do whatever. Like, I'm going to do these things that yes. help me feel more empowered. So you can build new strengths. And I think that's sort of the idea is that no matter how, no matter when you have the diagnosis in your life, like 20 versus 50 versus 80, or how far along in the process you are diagnosed at, stage one through stage four, um, or what body part is affected, you have strengths. Mm-hmm. right? Those don't just evaporate. Um, and you can always build new strengths
3: right,
2: right? and i don't mean physical strength. like it's not like if you're 90 yeah. it's not like you're going to go out and bench press 400 pounds like that's probably not likely to happen sure. although i'm not counting against anybody just for the record <laughs> yeah it's
0: like so, your superpowers so, right? Yeah, exactly. like what's in your back pocket
2: right and so so that's so the idea is like what what we sort of think about is well what are the goals and so in this little um schematic from our powerpoint you know the idea was like Um, One of my goals is to spend time with my kids, but my kids don't live near me. Um, But I have this really great podcasting technology. Um, And so I can, you know, I can Skype with them, and that helps me feel connected and them feel connected with me. And then I also know, like, you know what? They used to come once a year. It's worth it to me to pay for a plane ticket for them to come twice a year. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm willing to not have pizza once a week. Sure. And save up my pennies so I can have my daughter fly in from Seattle or wherever. Um, so that so the idea is like that becomes the plan. So the idea is I'm going to use my strengths to overcome whatever barriers I have in front of me, so I can achieve my goals. Mm-hmm. And the way I do that is by thinking about like specifically how do I do? How do, you know, what's the plan for that? So, and the that. idea is it just puts you in, in ultimately this becomes your coping plan, yeah. right? And when you're talking about survivorship writ large, your and this is the path to the new normal, right? Is I develop a coping plan mm-hmm. that allows me to exercise my core values, that allows me to do the things that I think are valuable in the world, to spend time with the people I love and care about, and that helps guide me. And then I have these, but I, that's not enough, right? I need some tools mm-hmm. to help me do that. So who are the people who I can talk to to help me get those tools? What resources online like you guys or if you come to Mass General Cancer Center, you can come to see me. Um, yeah. But the idea is, you know, uh, shameless plug, um, that uh, those are the things that I then do that helped me overcome this barrier of not knowing how to how to achieve this. I don't, I've never had breast cancer before. I don't know mm-hmm. all the resources. Who do I talk to? Right. So that's where the crowdsourcing like you guys do is really valuable because someone from Spokane can give some advice that someone from Tampa can find really useful and yeah. they will never in practical terms meet each other. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So, so that's sort of the, the practical application. So that's what don't do. take this the wrong way <laughs> but yeah. you guys are a tool um, uh, in, a, in the best possible sense. Um, you may have to edit that part out. Yeah, but anyway. No, no, just the give the us the
0: five star rating <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> Ready
2: review. Yeah, yeah. Five star on the Yelp. <laughs> best tool ever. Um, but, no, but the other thing that's the idea. Like this is an example of, um, you know, this is a resource that people can then use to uh, really help them access the services they need and to think about this journey in a way that is empowering. Right. And that's the work that I do. And um, so yeah. So thanks for having Love me. it.
0: Thank you so you're much. So I. Thank you. Oh, I'm so excited to get this out. This is perfect. <laughs> now for breakdowns and rebounds. All right. Let me take you back to like last week when. I got a call back for a chest x-ray. i am If you can't tell in my voice this week, it has been incredibly raspy. I am dealing with a bunch of sinus issues, what I'm calling allergies. And I am so glad that my medical care team is so proactive. And, you know, with cancer, part of this new normal is that you can never just go into the doctor's office anymore because every little thing... Is never just a little thing anymore. Every little thing becomes, let's do some blood work. Let's do some more tests and let's see what's really going on. Because again, at the end of the day, we want to make sure it's not cancer. So I go in because I have a cold and they want to do some chest x-rays to see if there's any fluid in my lungs and everything seemed fine. I did an x-ray and went about my day. I never heard back from the doctor, so I figured everything must be fine, and if there was no phone call, I'm sure everything just checked out, and yes, there's no fluid in the lungs, we ruled out pneumonia, and this is just allergies. Well, lo and behold, on Friday, I got a phone call from my doctor saying that he would like me to come back and do a follow-up x-ray. Because of the reconstruction that I had, there are some dense areas that they couldn't see through on the x-ray, and they wanted to make sure that what they were looking at was actually the scar tissue and not actually, you know, more dense, obscure masses on the lungs. Right. So that really left me with a good feeling. So this was my breakdown moment. I mean, you go into the doctors, this isn't even a mammogram. I'm literally going to see my primary care. I think everything is fine. I wanted to get some cough syrup because I wasn't feeling well. I was coughing all the time. And lo and behold I get a call I get a call to come back for another chest x-ray. Definitely had a breakdown right there. I was not having it. Ugh, it was so stressful. We all hear the term of anxiety waiting for results, and it doesn't get easier. And this was something I totally was not expecting. So yeah, that really sucked. So what did I do? What was my bounce back moment? I turned to our online community on Facebook. We have a closed Facebook group where all of us breast cancer thrivers like post pictures and comments and questions and support each other through the ups and downs of a breast cancer diagnosis. So I turned to my besties over on my Facebook group and just say, like, friends, oh my God, this is what's going on. This is totally crazy. Like, I don't know what to expect. I thought I was, like, keeping it pretty cool. And, you know, I actually couldn't sleep. I was, like, up at 3 in the morning writing this post because clearly the anxiety was weighing in. So the bounce back moment takeaway is that you need community you need support you need to put it down on paper the moment I started typing my post about what I was feeling I immediately started to feel better I knew I wasn't going to be judged in this environment and I had a million people reach out and like send the hearts and let me know that they're thinking of me and letting me know that they've been through something similar and immediately I didn't feel so alone so yes bouncing back it definitely is possible and we can totally do it thank you If this podcast was helpful, be sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review so we know that you liked it. There are so many ways to join our community. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at survivingbreastcancer.org. Follow us on Instagram, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and on YouTube at bit.ly forward slash YouTube SBC, and on Twitter, SBC underscore ORG. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at Laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thanks. Until next time, talk to you then.